Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series, a new books network in architecture. This series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab, a new books network partnership, provides a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobility and movement. My name is Aliza Arja. And my name is Nuchelle Da Silva, the host of New Books in Architecture. Today, we are joined by Fernando Dominguez Rubio, an associate professor in the Department of Communication at the University of California, San Diego. We will be talking about his book, Still Life, Ecologies of the Modern Imagination at the Art Museum, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2020. Thank you very much for joining us today. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background. Well, thank you very much uh, for having me on the podcast. Um, So, I mean, normally this is the first question and I always struggle with this question, uh, uh, basically because I think that I had a very clear idea back in the day of how I could define myself uh, academically, and now it is increasingly difficult uh, as time passes, which I guess that should be the other way around. Uh, so I, I started, uh, my background is in, in sociology. I did my uh, undergrad education in Spain uh, in sociology. And then I did a master's in which I spent one year here in the U.S. uh, in the Department of Rhetoric at Berkeley. Then I did my PhD in uh, the U.K. in sociology as well. Uh, But there I was very much influenced by the anthropology department uh, and all the conversations that were taking place there. And, And when I was doing my PhD in the U.K. between sociology and anthropology, SDS is when, you know, Kind of began to be a very uh, have a very strong footprint in the conversation. So I was very much in conversation with SDS. I did a couple of stays in Lancaster, another one in Paris, um, and uh, you see, as, as as I moved on, more things started to pile on. So uh, then, to that makes you you also have to add uh, urban studies and architecture. And somehow I ended up in a department of communication, uh, which uh, is a funny department in the sense that it is a, a department that I always define it as a kind of a, a refugee camp for intellectuals that have been expelled from other disciplines. So people who do not quite fit in their disciplines, uh, and that is or, or that you know belong to too many things uh, at the same time, so that's why I guess uh, they welcome me in the department because I'm a misfit in that in that sense. Um, 
so that is why it is always kind of difficult to answer it. Is that I'm, I'm, I can say I'm a sociologist or I'm an anthropologist or I'm an SDS scholar. So it's kind of a combination. Yeah, that's wonderful to hear. And I guess, I mean, we can see how that reflects in your book as well, right? Um, you study, you know, you study museums and art through such an interesting perspective. And how do you see that being informed by, you know, this multi-sided, multidisciplinary background? Well, that that is that is exactly. I think that the the there is a direct correlation uh, between these loose disciplinary uh, setting in which I've always moved and the book. I mean, that is always both uh, uh, kind of the good thing and the bad thing about interdisciplinarity, the good thing is that you can explore and take an object of a study, like for example, the museum from many different perspectives. The bad thing is that you, uh, my biggest fear of writing this book was that I end up not talking to anyone because, you know, there are so many uh, different angles that I'm trying to pursue, so many disciplines and none of the discussions that I that I raise are specifically tailored to one discipline. So the risk is that you end up not, I mean, not raising anything that anyone is interested in because it doesn't correspond to any specific debate in one discipline. But, you know, that that's, that's a risk uh, that I had to uh, run, I guess. Well, we're certainly glad you took the risk. Uh, you know, as an anthropologist and uh, and architecture studies um, scholar, you know, we're certainly very much interested. Um, and on that note, let's dig in a little bit into the book itself. Um, I really love how you show that these seemingly still objects of art emerge through actually a great deal of work behind the scenes, so to speak. And, you know, taking a cue from your work, I couldn't help but wonder about the kinds of work that you put behind the scenes in um, producing this book that's also, you know, supposedly a still object. And maybe you don't think about it that way and we can talk about that as well. So um, can you tell us about the research process and the methodologies that guided you? Yeah, uh, so... Again, I mean, there was a, a, there were different uh, methodologies that I employed in the in the in the book. Uh, so, first of all, it was an ethnography. That's how it all began. So, I uh, I was very fortunate to be able to work uh, in the conservation department. Initially, uh, it was going to be this whole thing, whole book was going to be about digital art. Uh, and uh, I work uh, with uh, uh, one of the conservators at the, at the museum who specializes in uh, digital art. And then as I started to um, work in the museum, the whole thing kind of opened itself up. And then I realized that uh, it was, well, I mean, I realized that digital art was going to be the last chapter of the book instead of the book. Uh, because, I mean, I kind of, once I started to work there, there were so many worlds that opened themselves up and I tried to pursue them. 
So ethnography was uh, one of the uh, methods. The other one was interviews. I did close to 100 interviews um, with uh, different uh, people in the museum uh, from you know, curators, conservators, uh, AV technicians, uh, preparators, uh, registrars, uh, and anyone in between. Um, and then I did, of course, archival research uh, because I was trying to trace the history of uh, the museum. And um, those were the three methods that I, uh, the, the three main methods that I employ in the book. Thanks so much for that. Um, and I actually have a related question um, as you sort of talk about your various methodologies that you used to draw out um, your study. I was very curious about your choice of museum. You focus very much on practices behind the scenes at one of the most famous art museums in the world, uh, the Museum of Modern Art in New York, or MoMA, as it is more colloquially known. And I wondered what it was like to work with this institution. It's it's quite a behemoth. It's uh, quite a monster institution. So I was curious about, first, what factors influenced your choice of institution for your objective study, and also what it was like to work with all of these people, um, both within the museum working now, uh, and then to sort through their uh, extremely um, monster archives. So here is when I have the choice of uh, sticking to the academic uh, uh, answer or the real answer. So the real answer is that I chose it because of life and luck. Uh, so uh, that's how I ended up at MoMA. Uh, so I finished my PhD in the UK and I initially thought that I was going to do, I wanted, I knew that I wanted to do a museum um, and I can explain later or I can explain it now. Basically it's because uh, I, my PhD was on Robert Smithson's uh, work and one of his artworks that is the Spiral Jetty, which is basically entropy made visible at a monumental scale. So that, uh, it is an artwork that you know is supposed to unfold at a geological geological uh, scale and die, and it is supposed to make that visible. So I mean that it is still the the the, the line that threads the argument of this book. And but I was really when I I finished the, the dissertation is that okay this. Artist was trying to make entropy visible. The museum is trying to do the exact opposite. So it would be nice to understand uh, or to see how the museum deals with something that is not just a spiral jet, is any single thing is subjected to the same uh, uh, process. So what do they do with it? That was why I wanted to study a museum. And I initially thought about Tate. I was in the UK living there, uh, and I always had everything lined up to do it there. Uh, but then life happened. Uh, my wife uh, had a, a postdoc uh, offer in New York, and I had two choices, Tate or my wife. I chose my wife. Uh, and she was also pregnant of our first kid. Uh, so uh, we had to basically leave the UK and go 
to the U.S. Uh, and I was extremely lucky to get into, I knew that I wanted to do a museum, uh, but I was extremely lucky to be able to work at MoMA. So life, which is normally the explan- the real explanation behind these choices, uh, is why I did MoMA. Working with MoMA is, is a huge institution. Uh, depending on the years, because I mean, they were, after 2008, they laid off people. But it's between 800 people, 1,000 people working there. It's, it's huge, it's humongous. Uh, it was... Um, it was difficult at first because uh, it is something seen that because of its size, scales, and importance, it is uh, unlike many other museums. And for example, one of the things that is different in MoMA is how the division of labor takes place. Um, you have a department for every uh, action. Uh, in, and in mid-size uh, or small museums, you know, one person does three things. Uh, in, the muse- in MoMA, you have... Uh, one department doing each of those things. So it took me a while to map out the museum and uh, understand its specificity. Um, and that has been also always a concern of mine, is that you, I'm, 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 how do I write about a museum that is so unique, but whatever I say can resonate beyond uh, this specific museum, this specific setting. Um, I was also wondering, what is the academic answer that you give to Michelle's question? How the academic, I mean, the academic, you know, you can, you can create one. I'm really, in, I've always been very interested in, uh, in entropy. And of course, what best uh, uh, to pursue that, that go to the museum? You know, I mean, it's, it's easy to do to do that. Uh, and in a way, I mean, that is not a lie. I mean, that's, I, I, I wanted to study a, a museum. And I wanted to be a big museum because, uh, because it is, you know, I, as I write in the book, uh, I see museums as machines. And this is not a metaphor. I mean, it is, is what they are. They are architectural uh, infrastructural machines designed to slow down entropy. Uh, so I wanted to go to, you know, what is the, the biggest machine that has been created to deny this? So I wanted the big museum to see, okay, what is the limit case of this denial, of the denial of, uh, well, not the denial, uh, but is the negotiation of entropy. So that's why I wanted it to be a big museum is to, try to see what is the limit of that scenario in which entropy is, if not denied, uh, that is the ultimate, you know, goal uh, or the wish. Yeah, that's that's wonderful to know. Um, I was also wondering how your experiences at MoMA sort of led you to shape the book around stillness. And, you know, particularly since, you know, one of our channels are about mobility and movement, I'm wondering, like, what are these tensions between the stillness, but also the movement and, you know, this machine um, that can be of interest to our listeners? Um, and piggyback, piggybacking off that a little bit, I would love to hear you share with our listeners a little bit about your experience in one of the facilities that um 
propagates this kind of mu- uh, this movement. I was really intrigued by your chapter on the storage facility that MoMA has in Queens, uh, and you evoke the kind of um, the difficulty of meaning, min- maintaining uh, a facility like that to somehow bro- like bridge the paradox between extreme stillness in terms of time, but also physical movement. Um, so it'd be lovely to hear a little bit about your experiences seeing a part of the museum that very few people have access to. So the two questions are related. Um, so, I mean, one sentence that I didn't include in the book and I really regret it is, uh, you know, the, the book is called Still Life. And, and the idea is, you know, is that, that's what the museum is trying to do in a way, is still in life. And uh, what I wanted to write that I didn't write is that, you know, uh, still life is still life. So that to play with that, uh, with those two uh, meanings of the uh, uh, sentence. Uh, so the museum, even if it tries to steal as much as it can, life, because uh, these one of the things that I try to make evident through the book is that we are talking about mineral, chemical, geological processes. Uh, that is what is being. Uh, trying the, the museum is trying to to render still the paradox which is not a paradox is that uh, and this is something that you know people like John Uri and the mobilities paradigm um, have been uh, have made very clear is that in order to create a stillness you need a lot of movement and in order to create movement you need a lot of stillness um, so th- and th- that is the paradox that the museum uh, in which the, the museum dwells. Uh, so in order to, you want, uh, and one of the things that is happening and has been happening exponentially in their world since the, especially since the nineties is the increase in art loans and the circulation of art, uh, in, um, or through exhibitions. So if, if you want that artwork to move from New York to, uh, somewhere else, that artwork has to be still. And you have to guarantee that uh, uh, the movement is predicated on stillness, which means that uh, the artwork that uh, you have to guarantee that the artwork that is sent from New York to, say, Madrid arrives in the exact same condition. So uh, that is what the museum has to do, has to produce stillness so that movement becomes possible. Uh, One of the places in which that is done is storage, which as I try to say in the museum, in, sorry, in the book, that is the main space of the museum. Uh, exhibitions are very uh, uh, small in comparison to uh, storages. So where most of the negotiation of stillness and movement ha- takes place is in storages, uh, where there are all these climatic uh, uh, architectural infrastructures uh, devoted to render life still, to render polymers, to render uh, you know process of uh, oxidization, uh, uh, or not as still, but to slow them as much as as possible. Now, one of the things that I try to uh, do in the book is that the book is about the study of very boring things. Um, you know, like storage and boxes and stuff like that. I found them fascinating. Uh, but, you know, 
there are not too, there, there hasn't been too much interest in these spaces, but in one of the things I say in the book is understandable because you go into the storage and you see boxes, and that's pretty much what you see. Uh, there is a lot going on in and around those boxes, but you see boxes. Uh, and there are a few preparators, uh, uh, but there's actually not too many people to talk to in, in those spaces. I think that they are fascinating spaces, and that's why I hope I have tried. I hope I have conveyed in 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 the book, uh, but they have been neglected. Uh, uh, I think that part of that ne- uh, neglect has to do with the fact that, at first sight, they are really an interesting. It's like you know trying to do an ethnography of a data center. You go into a data center, you see server racks. There's a lot going on there, but there is. Not much that you can uh, study by, you know, spending six hours there. You see the same thing. So what do you do um, to, you know, notice these nuanced things going on? Um, What were some of your experiences in trying to get to those movements that create stillness? Well, I I came across with, uh, so for example, one of the issues that for me was very interesting for the beginning was boxing. Uh, uh, so boxing is the process of creating, uh, is the process. So when an, an artwork comes into the museum, most artworks uh, do not go to the exhibition room. Uh, and the first thing that they have to figure out is how to store it. And in order to store it, they have to figure out how to uh, uh, um, box it, create it, or wrap it. Uh, and since I was in the conservation department, uh, I started to be very fascinated by the fact that each uh, uh, new object requires a conversation around it about how to do it. And some of those conversations, I mean, in some cases, it's a very straightforward process. You know, you have an oil painting, there, there are standardized uh, solutions for it that have been uh uh, going on for a long time, so they know what to do. But then you get something out of wax or milk or butter or blood or you know uh, latex or anything else. And then they become kind of puzzles that need to be solved. And then there is a huge social world that is surrounding uh, this process of how do we store this? How do we, cre- do we create a solution for this? I chose one particular example, which is the Matisse uh, example. It took six months to write a bo- to, to, to create a box uh, for that hour. Six months of meetings, uh, drawings, uh, mock-ups, uh, failures, just to build a box. So that's, you know, when, when then, you know, once you know that, when you go into the museum, sorry, in this, into the storage, you don't see boxes. You see solutions to a puzzle, and each, and then you start to wonder how uh, were these puzzles solved, uh, and and then it becomes much more interesting. Um, MoMA has been such a pioneer in these kinds of methods of creating and moving and sort of behind the scenes work that you're describing and their registrars, their curators, a lot of their staff have been at the forefront of sharing blueprints for best practices in this regard. And I think you use some really intriguing terms to try and 
pull together this kind of constellation of practices that they use to care for their objects. Um, and I'm particularly interested in your use of the term ecological forms to articulate this constellation of labor that is sort of required to keep the art object intact, both materially and as, you know, our ideal of an art object. Uh, and this use of the term ecological forms is seems particularly pertinent at this time, given current conversations about the environment and climate change. Um, so that's one term I found particularly intriguing. And then you also describe this work at MoMA as mimeographic labor. So could you talk a little bit about your use of these concepts in the book uh, for our listeners? I can try. Uh, let's see if I, if I make sense. Uh, this is a difficult one. So uh, ecological is a force for me. There are different things that I can separate out. So ecology, as I understand and use it in the book, is a method of inquiry and a method of doing research. I can get to that through what I, I mean uh, by ecological forms. I think that one way of understanding this uh, is that the museum is just a portion of the natural environment. Uh, even if we do not see it as such, uh, but it's a chunk of the material environment. Uh, the things that are inside those walls are uh, have the same composition as the things that are uh, outside those walls. We, don't see, we, we, we create a difference between them thinking that, you know, these are uh, art and they have value. Uh, uh, and then the rest, uh, what is outside is just nature. Uh, but those are natural forms in the exact same way, the same exact composition as those outside. The ones inside are the ones that we want to keep because we value them, we narrate ourselves through them, we, we dream through them, we open possibilities through them. And, and, and that's how we separate them. So an artwork is an ecological form. When I say that an artwork is an ecological form, it is because it is part, it's, it's not part of the environment, it's the environment. Uh, so that's, I think, a one way of uh, uh, getting to that understanding quickly. I tried to push it a little bit farther uh, in saying that not only the artworks as things are ecological forms, but our concepts are also ecological forms. So the very category of uh, the artwork or uh, authorship or intentionality are also ecological forms. And what I mean by that is that these are not categories that we have. I mean, in, in for example, in sociology, it has been a normal framework to understand that culture is something that we have in the heads and that nature is what is outside our heads. And the process of producing culture is by materializing what we have in the heads in the world, right? And I try to take the opposite route, saying that, well, we have to build those forms from the ground up. So they don't go from our heads to the world. Is that If you want to uh, produce the notion of an author, you have to build it literally from the ground up. And you have to uh, uh, care for it. And there is actually someone uh, that 
has to be taking care of those boundaries in the world. And that's, for example, what the conservatives do. One of the things that the conservatives have to do is uh, to establish the definition between what is dirt and what is art. Uh, So they have to be the ones making interventions in these things so that we keep what belongs to culture, the author, uh, on one side, and what belongs to nature and dirt to the other. And when, as one of the conservatives put it in, and I think that I cited him in the uh, uh, book, he says, he he told me, nature is constantly encroaching upon us. Um, and for, him, for what he was trying to say is that you know we, all these things are constantly being taken over uh, by these processes and undoing the meanings that are, have been built in them, undoing the trace of the author. And what we have to do is to uh, try to prevent that movement by keeping the boundaries uh, between what, what is nature and what is culture, what is uh, uh, meaningless and what is meaningful, what is valueless uh, and what is uh, has value or is valuable. So uh, what I'm trying to say is that these are ecological forms because uh, these are things that uh, take place uh, uh, in this uh, uh, ecology that is neither natural nor culture. And I, and I think that, you know, nature and culture is are the sides that emerge through this work, the two sides of the coin that emerge through this uh, work. The other thing that I want to say is that, you know, there are many different ways of dealing with these ecological forms that do not end up in that duality. So uh, one of the things that I try to say in the book is that art, and as I call it, the modern aesthetic regime, is a particular particular way of dealing with the world to produce these two sides of nature, culture, art, uh, authorship. Uh, But there are many other ways in which we can intervene that do not end up in that um, duality. So I could talk much more, but I think that I shouldn't. This is fascinating. Um, Thank you very much. Um, And, you know, in light of what you said, you touched upon care a little bit. And I Mm -hmm. was wondering if we could elaborate on that. I'm especially wondering how sort of this thinking through ecological forms expands your understanding of care and Mm -hmm. also you know, and specifically care in relation to artworks and artists. Yeah, so it is it is related to ecology. So for me, care, when I started to think about care, is because, you know, in conservation, that's, that's, that's their idiom, that's their language. Uh, they care about these things. Uh, but from the get-go, it was very clear to me that uh, care is a profoundly ambivalent uh, and contradictory practice. Uh, And that is how I think that that permeates the whole book. Uh, You know, one of the things that became really evident for me is that care is extremely onerous. Uh, It is extremely labor intensive. I mean, these, uh, a museum is trying to care for, in some cases, a piece of paper. Caring for that uh, uh, for a piece of paper, it takes a lot of labor, a lot of time, a lot of infrastructures uh, just to care for that piece of paper. Uh, what that revealed to me is that you know sometimes in discussions, in the initial discussions about care, care was seen as 
in a positive light as uh, the willingness to, as, as empathy and as an ethical project, uh, as, a, as a way of grounding an ethical project about extending uh, um, empathy and building common worlds. And, and that is true. But one of the things that I, tr- that I tried to, that I saw in the museum is that care is not the other of neglect. Uh, care produces neglect. And, and, and you have to see that tension, and you see that tension constantly in the museum. The reason for that is because you cannot care for everything uh, always. So when you choose to care for something and devote uh, the resources that you need to care for something, you are not caring for something else. So when you start to uh, see how those decisions are made and take place, what you start to see is that care, what you do with care is to map out the geography of neglect as well. Because some things are deemed to, to require intervention, where, whereas others don't. Some things become what I call in the book objects of care. Others don't. So, uh, and that is, that is always a, a dilemma that, that is unresolvable in the sense that there is no form of care that does not produce neglect. And one of the big questions in the museum is what deserves care? Uh, what deserves uh, uh, our attention now? Uh, each of the projects that I detail in the book, I mean, those are uh, months-long, year-long projects uh, in which uh, people have to put hours and hours and hours and hours into uh, caring for uh, one particular piece of artwork. So, for example, in the Matisse uh, piece that I mentioned earlier, it was not just a crate that took six months. Uh, 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 it took 2,000 hours uh, just to, uh, of one conservator distributed over two years uh, to unstack uh, the paper from the burlap in which it was uh, done. Those 2,000 hours... Uh, over two years uh, could have been devoted to something else. So one of the th- things that you be- that become very clear in the museum is uh, that uh, one of the ways in which I saw care for myself is that you can see care as a negative of, you can say power, not a negative in the sense of the negation of, but is you know negative as a, as a photographic negative is see the same they see power in an inverted figure uh, because when you follow care you're seeing what how what those with the capacity to care are caring for uh, and what as a result they are not caring for. Yes, and you make that really clear in the book that. You know, while many scholars and indeed many of us who go to museums focus very much on the kinds of power that occur sort of front of house within the exhibition, we're really not taking into account the kind of power that people behind the scenes like conservators are exerting to keep our idea of art intact. Uh, And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how your focus on this behind the scenes work Um, figures into the section in your book that actually brings it back to the exhibition space that, as you say, only constitutes maybe 10 to 15% of the museum, but is the most um, visible part to all of us. So could you talk a little bit about how your experiences 
getting familiar with these power relations behind the scenes shape how you write differently about the more visible spaces? Yeah, that that, that is um, that again goes back to ethnography. If you see the museum as the workers in the museum, see the museum, the exhibition is the end product, is the last thing. Uh, often uh, when scholars have uh, um, approached the museum, they approach it from the exhibition room because that's the first thing that they see. So is 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 that what is you know how people access the museum. But when you look at the museum from the perspective of the workers of the museum, which is what I try to do in the book, uh, the exhibition is what has to be achieved. So it's the last thing. So then what you see in the exhibition is the end result of a lot of processes that are embedded there. And I I repeat in the book that, you know, a lot of the attention in the museum has to do with uh, display and exhibitions, and there has been a lot of discussion about the politics of display, and I think that that is wonderful, so I, I don't have anything, I don't have any critique uh, uh, about that literature. Uh, what I try to do is that that is one way of understanding the museum and what emerge and the figures that emerge in the exhibition room, you can do that reading of power and asymmetries of representation as they uh, take place in the exhibition room. But there is much more to that. Uh, and that's what I try to say. So for example, sometimes, you know, you, you get to see something, the, the reason why you get to see something in the uh, exhibition room, it has to do not just with a, a curatorial choice per se, but with the fact that that curatorial choice has taken place uh, within the constraints that all these back-end exerts on those choices. So to understand those choices, you cannot just attribute that to the museum operating in a vacuum. You have to understand all these uh, other uh, uh, symmetries that are built into how much and uh, care is expensive and how that shapes uh, what you get to see in the museum. One of the things for, for me that was very important is, for example, to track uh, the inequality between North and South and how uh, is it that museums like MoMA end up having artworks from the Global South and narrating them and uh, being these spokespersons for things that do not belong to them. And if you follow uh, the minutiae of storage uh, and and loans and uh, all that work that goes into that, it becomes, you have another understanding of why that is the case. and very often has to do with the fact that uh, it seems like MoMA had an enormous financial clout to be able to buy those things and store them. And uh, other museums don't have that capacity. And that creates an asymmetry narrative that is built in an asymmetry of resources and infrastructures. So that's one of the links that I wanted to show in the book that I think is sometimes 
not neglected, but probably it doesn't is not at the center of those conversations uh, on the exhibition room and display. Yeah, I really appreciated that you know you use the sense of unevenness of care and maintenance to show that you know these asymmetries are not just confined to MoMA. They are actually you know looking at MoMA shows us something about the art world in general, right? Yeah, and, and and you know I I'm profoundly ambivalent about how I think about the museum. I don't know if I should hate them or love them or both at the same time. Uh, and I think that is okay to be contradictory and torn. Um, and this has to do. I mean, I think that a, a mode of approaching museums, uh, especially in critical theory, has been to uh, attack the museum, and I think that does. They, they they deserve it <laughs> in many cases, right? Um, but I was trying to I was intrigued by what what is it that the museum is always this ritual killing of the museum that never kills the museum. What, what is it that you know the museum keeps being there? Uh, and I think that it has to do with what you just uh, what Alice you just said, which is. Uh, with uh, the kind of function that it performs in the art world in general. So, you know, since the 60s, there have been a thousand different uh, attempts of uh, doing art beyond the institution, beyond the museum. And um, it's one of the big or the late motifs of the art world, right? It's trying to bypass the museum, do something outside. Um and, but one of the problems that those movements have is not about producing that movement eh, or does that gesture is about preserving that gesture. And, and when it comes to preserving that gesture, then it becomes very difficult to keep them alive. And that is where the museum then emerges again as the machine that uh, can keep the gestures that were born to kill it alive. And you see, I mean, I remember one of the things that I remember in the, in the museum is when artists who in the 60s and the 70s were extremely iconoclastic, extremely uh, against the museum, then they were interviewed by conservators about how to preserve their work. And this is not to blame them at all. I mean, it's, uh, it, but it's that, that kind of uh, paradox of, you know, one thing is to produce the critical jest, another one is to preserve it. And the museum is equipped to do that, and then you have this really ambivalent relationship to the museum, uh, and that creates uh, who has that capacity creates that unevenness. Because when you enter into the museum, you enter into the museum in the terms of the museum, uh, and that is, for example, one of the things that is mind blowing is uh, how much African art the museum has, MoMA, uh, contemporary art. And that is not shown, uh, uh, and it is not shown because it doesn't enter into uh, the way MoMA narrates art. Uh, and that creates this unevenness is that these hours are now being stored. And it's kind of, I talk in the book, it's like having a, a pact with the devil. Uh, I give you life in exchange of silence or invisibility. We can keep you forever, but you're going to be silenced. 
that's one way in which that unevenness is created is uh, the capacity to care makes uh, uh, creates this flow of artworks into those who have the capacity to care who then can uh, uh, represent or create these courses in their own terms. And those who don't have the capacity to care uh, face the uh, risk of uh, not being able to keep that uh, uh, gesture, that critical gesture alive. Another example that I give in the book is, for example, how many, you know, well, you know, from these objects are one of the cases. They're very difficult to preserve. And many of the big databases that have been used to preserve then end up being stored in museums because they have the capacity to uh, care for them over the long run. So that's one way in which, you know, this care is associated to how that it produces uh, an uneven geography and an uneven distribution of narratives. And that's another way of seeing how that is produced. Yes, and MoMA in particular has come very much both under fire and has been praised for its capacity to to care, as you say. Um, And one of the particular challenges that MoMA has is precisely its need to look ahead into the future and, you know, amass this vast stock of material that it thinks will be considered art in the future as well. And one thing you bring up in the book and that sort of falls into your own experience, um, your postdoctoral fellowship in digital art conservation, is the particular challenges of digital art in the present and that many people might think to be easier to conserve because in some ways it seems so ephemeral and in the cloud and, you know, not requiring the same kind of work as, you know, a physical painting. But as you point out in your book, it comes with its own set of, you know, extremely knotty challenges. So could you talk a little bit about what makes these challenges unique and some of the ways in which museums like MoMA address these challenges? So digital art actually is the most difficult part of the whole thing. Uh, and, and, and part of it, I mean, now the museums are very aware of that. There was a moment when digitization became a buzzword that they said, oh, we got a solution. We just need to digitize stuff and and that will solve uh, uh, our issues. It turned out to be the exact opposite. I mean, I say in the book, but, you know, you can still see a painting made 100 years ago. Try to open a Word file that you made 20 years ago uh, or... Uh, any you know an image uh, it's uh, it's extremely difficult so actually w- w- what has happened as uh, cultural production has gone uh, to digital media uh, it has created this paradox in which our the near past uh, so things that were produced 20 30 years ago are much more fragile and difficult to preserve than things that were produced 100 years ago uh, the reason for it is manifold uh, because digital digital uh, artworks um, uh, have many different components, uh, and you can explore it from the perspective of the hardware, or from the software, or from the file themselves. So the hardware, uh, you know, do you have a floppy disk? 
uh, who, who on earth has a floppy disk now? Well, you have a, actually a, a, a cathode-ray TV. Uh, no one has one. Um, and they were as ubiquitous as air uh, 10 years ago. Every, I mean, it was just, you know, having shoes and a floppy disk was just normal. And now, you know, try to find one. Uh, that's one thing. Uh, so the hardware, uh, one of the things that has happened is that there is a, a constant updating of these uh technologies that creates a rapid obsolescence uh, uh, within the spans the span of a decade and the same thing that applies to hardware applies to software i mean try to open something in windows 95 do you have windows 95 uh, who on earth knows how to boot something in on a windows 95 uh, and now think about the file extensions that you've had in your life. Uh, there are a few that are more or less stable, like PDF, uh, but even the uh, .doc became .docs, and, and MP3 became MP4, etc. So when artists produce artwork in these environments, uh, they are, again, in an ecology of uh, that is constantly moving, updating, and changing. And uh, the museum, well, in, in, if it's a, a picture that you took for yourself, of your family, you don't really care if you move it from one file to another file format. And as a result, because this happens, as a result, the colors change slightly or something like that. Um, or... Uh, you know, as it happens in in film, uh, when they digitize an, a, a, a movie, and they some you can see the changes in the in the in the digitized product, and it's not a big fuss, right? But remember that the the, the art world deals with a very specific form of objecthood in which authenticity, originality are the key components of that object. So in those cases, changing the colors, you're changing a piece uh, of art. So it is as if to preserve, a, uh, you know, a Picasso, you're changing green for yellow. Uh, everybody would throw their hands up in the air saying that you cannot do that. Uh, but in digital environments, that that is what can happen if you change something from one format to another. The problem with... Um, the, one of the problems uh, of digital art is that either you change them or they die because it is uh, very difficult to preserve the original iterations. You have to be constantly, as they call, migrating them to new environments so that you can st- still keep accessing them and running them. So you're forced to be constantly changing them into new environments, which is changing them into potentially different forms and that's the only way of keeping them alive so you cannot do as you know it happens with a painting is like try to slow down entropy right so try to slow it down as much as you can now here is you have to move it you have to keep moving it uh, to the next uh, iteration of software so you can operate in the new environment uh, so it's an entirely different logic that end that ends up producing uh, multiple iterations of the same artwork. And then the question is, is it the same artwork? Or to what extent are we going to accept that is the changes and still take it as the same artwork? One of the things that for me is interesting, and that's also why I left that chapter for the last one, the one that deals with digital objects, 
is that as a, um, it's kind of paradoxical that the digital uh, digital media, instead of throwing, you know, bringing us to the future, it kind of actually throw us back into the past, because that is how many other aesthetic regimes outside modernity uh, produce objects through replication, through copies, through equivalents, through changes, and that was perfectly fine. It is the the modern aesthetic regime is the exception to that rule. Is the one in which uh, it was decided uh, uh, that only the artwork that remains exactly the same is the one that is valid. And then the digital artwork says, well, with us, that is impossible. So what are you going to do with us? Uh, and then it opens up a way of, in a way, provincializing uh, uh, the modern aesthetic regime as a period, as something with uh, with a specific contours and a specific temporality and just a one logic among many. Uh, so it opens up the idea of maybe there is another way of preserving that does not consist in trying to steal life. That's fascinating. Thank you very much. Um, and lastly, speaking of the future, we were wondering what's in the future for you. Um, what are some next projects or issues that you're thinking about? Well, my main project now is to keep myself sane uh, in the midst of this insanity. Uh, and that is that is what I want to do. And I don't know if I'm going to make it. Very uh, fair. If, if I make it, uh, uh, I... My idea, which I don't know now if we, if will ever come to fruition, is to write a book about the politics of fragility. Uh, so I want it to be a short book, uh, not a long book, uh, on many of the themes that I couldn't delve into in the book, which are the political ramifications of thinking fragility. Um, one of the things that I tried to say in the book, and for me that was kind of the constant uh, throughout the research is, you know, in a museum you cannot take fragility as a bug or an exception or as an episode. Uh, it's what defines everything. So what happens when you take fragility and you assume fragility as the condition of living rather than something that it can be overcome because it can never be overcome? Um, so what is the political, uh, what are the political implications of thinking fragility as, uh, that, uh, unsurmountable feature of our lives and not as something that in any dream, uh, which the museum in a way is, uh, tr uh tries to pretend that it can be solved or that it can be fixed, or that it can be tamed. Um, and I think that the museum is that kind of, uh, it's, a, it's an institution in which that paradox becomes visible. Uh, in the, I mean, the museum would love to you know, overcome fragility, but they know that that is not possible. They know that that is the condition of, these, uh, of life uh, and of these things that they keep in their vaults. Uh, so I... You know, I finished the book with a conclusion, which for me is a question, which is, you know, what happens then if you take these uh, 
paradox of trying to overcome fragility at, at the same time that not knowing that that can never be overcome. And I want that to be the central question for the next project on fragility. Yes, it does seem like 2020 is a good year for thinking about uh, the fragility of things, uh, both of ourselves and the world around us. Um, but And in the interest of self-preservation, I know we've taken up a lot of your time. So thank you so much for joining us today, for sharing your insights, um, for giving us this sort of sneak preview to your very exciting book. So we both really appreciate having had this opportunity to chat with you today. Well, thank you so much. It's been a real, real pleasure. I'm Nushal De Silva. And I'm Aliza Rujan. This discussion of still life, ecologies of the modern imagination at the Art Museum, published by University of Chicago Press in 2020, is brought to you by the New Books in Architecture channel of the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening.